Hello everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan and here we are at the second part of our short four-part series on missing the mark and hitting it. We're looking at the concept of sin here which is something that no one really wants to talk about but which, maybe against our common desires, may still actually be worth talking about as I hope you'll agree at some point in this uh, series. I think the concept of sin is worth exploring for what it can tell us about life, even if it is a kind of shadow side to the question of how to live better. What we've covered so far is a very simple definition of sin. It is basically the propensity we have to wreck things, to muck things up. It's what seizes hold of order and creates disorder. It takes the good and it corrupts it. You could think of sin as the culpable violation of wholeness because it's whatever stands against even the possibility of completion. Sin is anti-improvement. Anything that takes whatever is coherent and whole and splits it up, well, that is sin. It disintegrates the integrated world for us. And it's therefore also something that interferes with us finding meaning in life because to find something meaningful, you you need to find integration. Sin sabotages our hopes of leading meaningful lives. A parable may be helpful for us. So here's a parable. Once, somehow, an eagle's egg found its way into the nest of a chicken. We don't ask how it got there because this is just a parable and that detail isn't relevant. But anyway, the egg hatched. And because it was an eagle's egg, out hatched a little baby eagle. The mother hen, having very little brain, assumed that this was in fact her very own offspring, and so she raised the poor little eagle as a chicken. One day, when that little eagle was outside with the other chicks scratching around in the dirt just like them, a shadow was cast on the ground that made this baby eagle look up. What's that? he asked the other chickens. The old rooster who was standing nearby answered him, That, he said, is an eagle. It's the greatest of birds, majestic and wonderful. Wow, said the little eagle to the rooster. I wish I could fly like that. Well, said the rooster, you can't because you're a chicken. So the eagle who thought himself a chicken lived and died as all chickens do, for that is what he thought he was. I didn't say it was going to be a cheerful parable, but it does serve as a good symbol of what we're talking about here. In a way, we're all idiots, scratching around in the dirt, and there's this stupid rooster inside us and beyond us, who will stand in for the concept of sin for our purposes, and this rooster tells us that we can't fly, or that we shouldn't even bother trying. It sabotages our chances of learning who we really are and who we were meant to be. Life is supposed to be abundant, but we find it easier to believe that, well, it's not. We're not supposed to be spectacular and awe-inspiring, we think. We're just supposed to muddle along like everyone else does. Well, that little voice in us, which is often manifest in the form of the inner critic, that is sin. Sometimes, by the way, the inner critic can be very helpful if it is trying to get us to improve. Apart from the fact that it is intrinsically interesting, I think one of the core reasons why I'm looking at the subject of sin is because I find it a better explanation for a lot of the things that go wrong in the world than many of the other explanations around. People will explain the problem by means of systems and policies and you know political 
whatever affiliations and a number of other things and while of course there are many things wrong with systems and policies and politics and many other things that could therefore be fixed the trouble is much bigger than such things the trouble is in us even if we were to find the perfect policies or systems or political leaders and so on we would still find a way to muck things up in any case the general trend these days is that people are remarkably good at disowning their own sin so i think this is one of the the problems in a way with, that comes to, along with abandoning the christian heritage is that the christian heritage a massive part of it as much as we may despise it um, is actually looking within us and noticing that there's a problem and when i say that people are good um, at disowning their own sin i do mean you and me we're all guilty of this it's a piece of cake to spot the enemy somewhere out there as long as it's not me and it's not here it's easy to see the flaws of the political right if you're a lefty or the crimes of the left if you happen to be slightly more right wing it's easy to spot the tyranny of both if you're a centrist and so on the political polarization in the world is horrific and it seems to be getting worse in a way all because we would rather talk about what the other side is doing wrong than talk about this thing in all of us that mucks everything up in the end while there are better and worse ways of thinking about things and organizing ideas and people i think the problem isn't merely ideological ideology is often just the face of the real problem it's the mask if you will so i don't think the issue is that the left is necessarily worse or better than the right or vice versa politically speaking sometimes sometimes the most morally upright people or maybe the most morally uptight people are part of the problem since they're so good at condemning others that they bring out the worst in everyone including themselves the media is full of examples these days of judgment without understanding and as aristotle put it in his nicomachean ethics although i'm paraphrasing it is impossible to judge rightly without actual understanding imagine keeping that in mind any time you're about to judge something so you could ask yourself do i understand it and if the answer is no then you can immediately say well then i can't judge it if all of us lived according to that idea we would i think all of us be doing much better than we currently are one of the few psychologists to acknowledge that sin has a part to play in our escalating pathologies namely carl jung proposed that when we disown our guilt and sin we are all the more likely to create an enemy and then what we'll do is project all the rottenness within us onto that enemy the results of this spiritual corruption this misplacing and misnaming of sin which itself is a result of sin can only be catastrophic and if only as a first step we really do need to recognize and own our own spiritual corruption that i know believe me is no fun it positively sucks to see in yourself the monstrosity that you wish only existed in others but the world will not be saved by blaming anyone else for our own faults in fact i'm pretty convinced that the world will never be saved by blaming in any form humanity has tried this and it's never worked out so i maintain along with the whole christian tradition that central to conversion to genuinely turning 
around and to turning things around is taking a decisive stance against this thing in us that is tearing everything to pieces. We cannot do this alone, of course, but maybe we can see what this thing looks like. Thus, my exploring the nature of sin, this missing of the mark. A better understanding of its severity may actually clue us into the serious need that all of us have for redemption. Actually, as Francis Spufford argues, this is one of the things about Christianity that makes complete emotional sense. We have all mucked up, and we witness the messes and muck-ups of others all the time, and so we can all quite easily see something needs to be done about it. So, while we're all trying to make sense of it, we might as well ask why we even have this terrible propensity. Philosophy, which as I've said, tends to ignore the idea of sin, has no real answer. Some psychology has a partial answer, but philosophical theology, which is what we're dealing with here, offers what I think is the most reasonable explanation. But on the way to explaining this, and in fact essential for explaining this, we first need to look at the second characteristic of sin, which Thomas Aquinas suggests is that it is contra natura. In other words, sin is against nature. Before you jump to thinking about ecological ethics, let me point out that that's not exactly what I'm talking about, at least not directly. It will no doubt have implications for how we relate to the environment. The nature in question is primarily our own. Sin is the negation of our own natures. This raises all kinds of questions about what human nature is. I mean, isn't sin part and parcel of human nature? When we screw up, aren't we likely to say, well, what do you expect? I'm only human. Aren't we, as many Calvinists tend to think, naturally sinful? Well, whether this is or is not what Calvinists do or don't think with their doctrine of total depravity, the Thomas take, which I think makes the most sense, is this. No, we are not naturally sinful. If anything, we are unnaturally sinful. Sin is unnatural. The idea of being naturally sinful places us in the domain of an ontological disorder, in other words, in the territory that would have sin be part of the given order of created reality. We might still entertain the possibility that this is how it is, but to my mind this causes us a severe problem, because it opens us up to the Gnostic idea that we must be saved from our human nature and not in and for it. So, what is the perspective of Thomas Aquinas. Well, first, nature implies createdness and, in our case, creatureliness. It is natural to think of ourselves as created beings, as creatures who happen to be the image bearers of the one who is the highest good. It is therefore quite natural for us to be aware of and quite simply thankful for, if not totally astonished by, our creaturely status. The atheistic or so-called naturalistic perspective on nature cannot be this one, and that presents problems of its own, because for the philosophically committed atheist, nature is precisely the thing that produces red teeth and claws and nuclear bombs. In simple terms, for the committed atheist, nature is already unnatural. For the theist, on the other hand, there is something in us that seeks to conform to a law within us, something that we can refer to as the natural law, the law that gives us conscience and a drive towards the good. Something in us reminds us 
of the direction we ought to be moving in and tells us when we waver and get off track. Something in us, to use my parable from earlier, tells us that no matter how normal it is to think of ourselves as chickens, we are still eagles. That something is our actual nature. So that's the first thing. Nature implies createdness and, for us, creatureliness. Second, which fits with the first thing, nature implies finitude and dependence. All ethics is actually a matter of finitude and dependence. It involves, at the very least, a tacit recognition of our natural limits and, of course, the natural limits of others. For example, I can see your need more clearly when I am aware of your limits, as well as what is good for you. I can also see how I am able to help, or if I am able to help, if I am aware of my own limitations. Again, in terms of what is good for you and what is good for me. Sin is often thought of as crossing a line, and I think this makes perfect sense here. Crossing a line means failing to adhere to a given limit. This can involve putting a line down where it shouldn't be, as well as seeing no lines where there should be lines. When you look at many of the vices, like sloth, anger, pride, envy, and so on, you'll notice again and again that in vices, limits are not adhered to. Lines are crossed all the time, and the line that is crossed when it comes to sin is the line that stops things from growing in the way they ought to. This brings to mind another thing that is natural, namely the desire to want to move from the good towards something that is better. It is natural for seeds to become trees, it is natural for children to become adults, and it is also natural for human beings to become better human beings, to become fully and truly human, that's the point. But the human propensity to muck things up works against this. So for example, it is quite natural to want to improve yourself. It is natural to want to make your potential actual. Sin is tyranny against this aspect of nature. It is against the natural. It's against reality itself, because this is a component of reality. And it is therefore against this freedom to want the good and the better. It turns us away from notions of createdness and creatureliness. And again, this involves a profound neglect of limits. Sin wants different limits or no limits at all. Sin will set up bad ideals as well. So, that's part of the trouble. It'll set up, for example, the ideal of a man with 100 heads and then rage against the actual human man because he has only one. To use an example more current to um, our time, namely from identity politics, sin is the sort of thing that will argue for a human being that is unaffected by biology. That would be the ideal. And then it would rage against any human being who seems, by virtue of their actual humanity to be rather obviously affected by their biology and their natural predispositions. The consequences of this will always be horrendous. Divisiveness and catastrophe will follow in the wake of any form of tyranny against reality. To act against nature in this way is not to set up a utopia, but to insist upon the opposite, dystopia. Totalitarian states are manifestations of sin in that they negate the human need for freedom. In other words, lines are drawn where they shouldn't be. And then something of the opposite of totalitarianism, namely anarchism, manifests sin in the forgetting of the human need for constraints. 
In other words, lines are taken away from where they actually should be. Ideologies of various kinds tend to manifest sin in their distortions of the good to suit particular egocentric ends. I think you get the idea. The reality of anything is in its conformity to its own form. It's, it's being true to its own shape. Unreality steps in the minute we criticize things for being themselves instead of being something else. There's this wonderful idea from Chesterton that before you tear down a fence, you should have a very clear sense of why it was put up there in the first place. Well, if there is one way to understand the age in which we live, it is to be understood as an age of torn down fences. Many of the original fences have been territorial, but some, maybe most of them, have been moral. And well, you can't do that without causing a lot of chaos because moral limits are part and parcel of our being as humans. Setting up a world without clear moral limits has led to a rather unsurprising consequence. People now want boundaries so badly that they manifest a desire for any boundary that happens to be offered to them, even if it isn't a very good boundary. Here's my boring, but probably quite practical suggestion. Before we can figure out where lines and limits actually are needed, it's probably worth first going back to have a look at those fences that were originally torn down. Maybe we need to put a few of those fences back up. Just for now, just until we can figure out their purpose, or at least the intention behind them. Only then, and only if necessary, can we begin to propose better boundaries and ways of articulating limits. The last thing I'm saying here is that this is all very simple. I really do not think it's simple at all. In any case, my point is that sin doesn't care about why those fences were put up. It tends to manifest in the form of a negative freedom. Freedom from limits, freedom from constraints. Ultimately, sin produces anti-freedom, though. Freedom from freedom itself. The weird thing to me is that when our lives end up in disarray, with terrible harm done to ourselves and others, it does not seem like a common strategy to want to put those original fences back up again, even if we know that freedom consists in the ability to choose sensible constraints. As the folks from Alcoholics Anonymous say, the trouble is that we tend to want more of what is not working. It seems easier just to keep the unnatural in place and go back to the basic question of what is natural and what is real. To know our finitude and our dependence is to know, again, naturally, that we cannot be the ground of ourselves any more than a plant can be its own soil. To know this is to be faced with a choice about how to orientate ourselves in the world. Do we orientate ourselves towards the ground of our being or the nothing that we were created out of? Some people criticize the Christian idea of God because, you know, why didn't he just make people who couldn't fall or couldn't sin? Well, the truth is, at least insofar as the logic of creation goes, any creature, if given consciousness and awareness rather than merely being a robot, would have had to be faced with the same choice between an orientation towards God or an orientation towards nothing. This choice, this orientation, is part of what it means to be a creature because of a range of things like our own finite perceptions, our capacity for misperceiving God's infinity and hiddenness, etc. We often choose to move towards nothing 
that is towards the denigration of the goodness of being rather than towards its fullness. There is a lot of mystery thrown into the mix in, in all of this. So, for example, our vulnerability to sickness and even death also has a part to play in this. It's our very weakness and vulnerability that allows us to feel more acutely our own groundlessness. And in the process, we become acutely aware of the nothing out of which we are called into existence at every moment. On the one hand, this can create trust as we rest again in the ground of being that is God. When this trust is what helps us to orientate ourselves in the world, we step closer to our true selves. We find ourselves truly free, truly saved, both in and from the nothingness that is so proximate to our own being. On the other hand, we often resist this rest and trust. We feel our groundlessness at the very same time as our compulsion to survive and thrive takes over. Ego starts to fight against the very trust that would save us. The distance between God and the nothing isn't far at all, and it's not always easy to know if what we're doing is giving into foolish unreality or courageously stepping into the truest reality that there is. Theism is never that far from nihilism, but there is an infinite difference between the two. So those are the first two aspects of sin's fight against nature. First, a fight against our createdness and creatureliness, and second, a refusal to accept our dependence and limitations. The third aspect of this is a refusal to accept our place in the created order. The way to think of this is in terms of gift exchange. Everything, merely by being itself, and this includes you and me, offers gifts to the world. And the basic idea is that sin refuses the gift in one way or another. I'm going to use a very commonsensical example to demonstrate what this might mean in terms of human relationships. Everyone has gifts, and I really do mean everyone, including those gifts that are not necessarily immediately obvious. Generally speaking, society works, and I mean works well, when there is a strong sense of the interrelatedness and interdependence of human beings in terms of their various kinds of giftedness. What one person gives is received by a person who gives in a different way. This, by the way, is part of St. Paul's point in his writing about spiritual gifts with the metaphor of the body having different parts. Everyone has a place and something to offer. If we're mindful to the natural gifts of everyone, this generates what I would refer to as a dynamic hierarchy. So, for example, in a very simple example, my wife is gifted in areas that I clearly am not, and I'm gifted in areas and ways that she is not, and harmony is enhanced by this strong awareness of both our gifts and our limitations. And obviously our weaknesses, but there is this general idea that has crept into the world that suggests, against what people have held for most of human history, that everyone is equally gifted and that all basically all people can fill all roles. For the record, an equally corrupt manifestation of this would be to assume that some are gifted and others are not. Um, and what this leads to is not the celebration of giftedness, but to its obvious denigration. Here's a real-life example that I heard recently. 
The daughter of someone I know was told recently that she can no longer swim competitively at school because she wins every time. And what this means from her school's perspective is that she's had her chance and now should let the other kids have their chance too. It makes the other kids feel bad that they're losing. So they've taken her out of the races. The school and its teachers ask themselves, how can the other children know that they're all special and equally gifted if this child keeps on winning every race that she's in? As the ancient Japanese proverb goes, the nail that sticks out too much will be hammered down. I wish this were a joke, but unfortunately it isn't. And it has an inadvertent consequence, something along the lines of the villain syndrome's quip in the movie The Incredibles. With everyone super, no one will be. One of the problems that emerges is this. If you aren't properly confronted with the giftedness of others, in other words, with the natural order of things, you are also unlikely to discover your own gifts too. The things you give to the world others don't, and the ways that you can offer something that others can't. One of the things that I think helped me to discover my own gifts was noticing the things that my brother was good at that I am not. The fact that he has gifts doesn't take away from me, and it never has, because when someone else wins at being who they are, being their truest and best selves, then actually everyone gets to win. Of course, again, determining what the created order is, in other words, how our different forms of giftedness interact, well, that's far from easy. Our views on what that may even be, have been and are distorted by the human propensity to muck things up. But the distortion doesn't mean that the original order doesn't exist, and no one ever said that the truth should be simple or easy to locate in any case. Which brings me to the last aspect of this fight against nature that I want to mention here. It fits with the third aspect um, of the fight against nature, namely the fight against the created order and therefore against giftedness. I mean, of course, that sin in turning against nature is turning against harmony. There is a desire to pick a fight at every turn. I know quite a few people who have made it their life's mission to always be fighting against something. I think it's one of the tyrannies of, of certain forms of activism, that, that the activism is in fact reactivism. We often pick fights in the name of justice, and while this may be worth doing, especially when the fight is picked for the sake of harmony, we need to notice the wisdom of the Christian tradition, which holds that we may do very bad things in the name of very good things. Sin would be the thing that would claim to do something in the name of justice when the actual motivation is revenge. Sin would also be the thing that says, let's fight for equality, when the real motivation is not equality, but the denigration of someone else. When you read the early church fathers, there's this constant refrain. It's even a little bit annoying. Unity, 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 unity. Why? They say, well, because God is one. The idea that there could even be such a thing as literally tens of thousands of church denominations, as there are today, would have utterly appalled the church fathers. But this is yet another manifestation of sin. Even if we want to keep things together, we are fairly amazingly inventive when it comes to tearing things apart. 
even our own psyches are spaces of disunity, which is one of the reasons I've started to remind myself again and again that one of the goals of life is to have a coherent worldview and to be an integrated human being. I don't think this is just an ideal. I think it's actually possible. Sin refuses to allow the sinner to be at harmony with himself or herself, and furthermore, it prevents harmony with others. But there is a further problem that emerges in all of this, namely that we can't see this thing called sin, nor can we see what it is doing. So we try to solve the problems we're dealing with while being blind to the actual cause. It's a little bit like trying to repaint the mask instead of learning how to take it off. Which brings me to the third characteristic of sin and the thing that I will tackle in the next episode, namely the idea that sin is against reason. I know that this is very dark and it may even leave you in a pretty dark space as we end this episode. Unfortunately, this is how it needs to go. It's going to get even darker before we start to look for some light and before we explore something of what it means to hit the mark that we happen to have been missing. Until next time then, look after yourselves. Mm-hmm.